that reminds us that everything will grow strangely dim when we truly look upon you. Father, thank you for the reminder that your mercy is more, that our sins are many, but your mercy is more. And what an appropriate uh, thought and meditation, Lord, as we uh, prepare to come to your table in a little while, that we are grateful for the reminder of what you've done for us in Christ, that while we are yet sinners, you died for us. We are a messy people that need your grace. And we just thank you that you are able to work and to lead in our lives, to show compassion, to love us, and yet to bring us the truth when it's necessary that we might turn to you. Father, we thank you that you are here with us. We pray for your help uh, in the rest of this service, Lord. Father, we lift up not just ourselves, but other churches. We lift up Friendly Grove Baptist Church here in the county, that you'd be with them this morning, that you would uh, guard and protect them, that, Lord, you would guide them, Lord, as they uh, minister to this community. Father, we pray for um, Trinity Bible Church in Wyoming. It's in our network, and we thank you for them. We pray that you would uh, sustain them, Lord, in uh, what trials that they are going through, that you would encourage them, that you would keep them, that you would uh, give them gospel faithfulness, and Lord, that uh, you would do this work in them and through them. Father, we pray for the persecuted church. We think of uh, the West African country of Mali uh, this morning, and we ask that you would strengthen believers there to stand firm amidst uh, much uh, violence, Lord, from Boko Haram and other um, uh, extremist groups that hate Christians and want to see it uh, pushed out of the country. We pray for your grace uh, amongst that persecution, that your church would stand strong, and those that are given to death, that, Father, you would help them to, to finish well, to finish faithfully, to lay down their lives, that their blood will not be shed in vain, but, Lord, you see it and you know it all together. Thank you for redeeming these, Lord, and, and for caring for them. You tell us to pray as if we're in chains with them, and we know that in many places that is the case. And so, Father, help us to take our freedoms, um, not for granted, but for your glory that you would help us. Father, we pray for the unreached people groups around the world, that we uh, ask that you would take missionaries to them, that you would bring um, the great news of Jesus Christ into their ears. We lift up the Jiorong people of China uh, and the Sitabao people, that you would be with them, that you would guard them, that you would um, save them. And so, Father, we ask for your compassion upon them, that you would send missionaries even in our generation. Father, we pray for uh, the wars in various places that... Uh, uh, plague our news feeds. We think of uh, Ukraine and Russia. We think of uh, Israel and um, Gaza and the um, refugees in all these different places that are hungry and starving, some innocent, some not. But Lord, you know the details. Would you show your grace uh, that you would um, uh, help these parties that are even uh, affected by war but are not uh, immediately involved, that, Lord, you would show your grace. We know your church is everywhere. We know there's believers 
in all of these circumstances. So we ask that you would show your grace to them and that they would minister your gospel wherever they find themselves. Lord, we pray for our military, that you would be with them, give them wisdom. We pray for our president and his uh, cabinet and his staff, Lord, that you would give them great wisdom. Uh, Lord, there's uh, much uh, on the um, political front, even in our own country, in an election year. We pray for your grace there. We pray that you would put uh, who you desire in power, that, Lord, we trust you, that we know that you're working all things uh, together uh, for your purposes and for our good, and that ultimately we await the returning king who will put all things uh, in place. Father, we ask that you would uh, show your grace to us as American citizens, that we would be uh, godly citizens, that we would see the good of our own country. And so we pray for her. There's no greater deed that we can do but to pray. And Lord, that you would uh, be with those that are serving and seeking to serve. And those who are out for her ill, Lord, we pray that you would bring them down, uh, that uh, you would be glorified, that the gospel would be uh, protected and the freedoms here um, as much as you would show grace. But we know your judgment uh, must come upon sin and that sin is a reproach to any people. And so uh, we beg for your mercy um, and we ask for your help there. Father, we pray for those that continue to grieve lost loved ones. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would comfort them and, and heal them and uh, be near to them. Father, we pray for expectant mothers. We think of Whitney and Sarah and uh, Liz, the, the uh, Fenny's grandbaby that's in the womb too, Lord, that you would be with uh, them, uh, that you would be with these pregnancies, that they would be healthy, that there would be no complications, and that these children would uh, come forth even even though as they come into a sinful world that they are coming into loving families, that, God, you are going to reveal yourself to them. So we pray that your, your grace upon these families. Father, we lift up those that are healing. We uh, thank you for your continued answers to prayer for Christina, Lord, as she has finished up her treatments, that we pray that you would continue to um, help her as she heals, her body heals, Lord, from uh, cancer treatments, that, Lord, you would uh, give her joy in you, uh, that you would give her a thanksgiving that uh, glorifies and makes much of you. Father, we pray for uh, John Cordy that we've been praying for with esophageal cancer, Lord, as he seeks your face, Lord, and the uncertainty of his condition. Father, that you would uh, show your kindness to him. Lord, I pray for my own son Jackson, Lord, that you would be with him as he heals uh, after being in the hospital yesterday. Thank you for having mercy upon him that this um, accident at the back of his throat could have been far more devastating. We thank you for his, the mercy that you've shown upon him and uh, the lessons you've taught him. And so, uh, Lord, show your mercy upon him and, and work in his life. Father, for Alyssa, Lord, as she heals from surgery this week, uh, getting her wisdom teeth out, Lord, that you would bring healing to her mouth and uh, her face um, and Lord, thank you for uh, what you're doing in her life and just how you are uh, near her. And I know she would love to be here this morning, but be with her, Lord, as she heals and rests today. Father, we lift up our shut-ins to you. We think of Janice and uh, Jack Tyler, Lord, that you'd be with him uh, and be with Janice, Lord, as they uh, trust you and maybe everyone listening this morning, that you would be with them and comfort them in a way that uh, you can. Uh, and so, Lord, we, we ask that you'd be with them. Father, we lift up those who are traveling. We think of 
Abigail Spenlove, Lord, as she is in Bolivia and serving with a missions team to bring a medical mission to um, many tribal people um, off the Amazon. Lord, would you give them safety? Would you give them health? Would you give them joy, Lord, as they serve, that you would guard them from any ailments, uh, sickness-wise, that you would um, help them to minister mercy, not just physically, but by your gospel to these tribal people. Father, thank you for Abigail's heart for missions, and uh, thank you for her willingness to go. And Lord, we look forward uh, to hearing when she gets back about what you um, are doing and what you've done. Father, we pray uh, for Brian. We continue to lift up Brian uh, and Sarah Furches to you, Lord, as they serve over at uh, Orion Baptist Church, that you'd be with them and encourage them in this new position. And Father, also for Christ alone, that you'd be with them as you continue to work in them and through them. We lift up Pastor Tim to you, that you would give him boldness to preach this morning. And thank you for your grace in his life and his health needs in Cindy's recently, uh, that you would just continue to, to work in them and through them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I trust you all are doing well. Uh, you can open up your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 27 as we continue our study there. Uh, and we will uh, continue to look at this transitional passage here of Genesis where the promise is given to an unexpected party by unexpected means. And we're going to look at verse 30 through 40 this morning. So would you stand with me as we read God's word together? This is God's holy word. As soon as Isaac finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, 
and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, it's been basketball season. It's quite uh, amazing how much uh, time that I've been investing in going to two of my sons playing basketball and watching their games. And in that time, it's been joyous to not just watch them play, but also to consider the game itself as far as offense and defense there's the sense of guarding the ball and getting it to the basket and the, the working of different plays to make sure that the team that you are on is scoring and winning. But it's step by step. It's, it's, it's one moment at a time. And a game can turn very quickly based upon the actions of a few. But as I was looking at that, it's very interesting that basketball is really nothing like life. We're constantly seeking to guard and have possession of the ball. It's, it's about trying to take it to the, to the goal. But in real life, is life not more about yielding? Yielding to the Lord? Yielding to the circumstances of our life to accept what God has brought and what he has allowed into our life and our circumstances? Oftentimes when we seek to defend ourselves or we seek to take the offensive that we are quickly reproved. We are quickly put in back in our place. And like a ball being slammed out of our hands, we find ourselves having to yield to the greater part of this life. And while life is not a game, and while life is serious, we find ourselves battling, do we not? We find ourselves looking ultimately towards the goal. And yet the Lord teaches us often that we are to submit and to yield ultimately to him. When our context of this scripture today, we're learning and seeing that Isaac himself is learning this great lesson, that while he would like his oldest son to receive the blessing, which was quite normal in the flow of events in history, let alone in the lives of many, that the firstborn would receive the promised blessing of any family, let alone in this context, Isaac, we have seen, has been mistaken. He's been mistaken a long time. In fact, since the birth of his own children, when he began to show favorites to Esau because of his um, gifts of game and hunting and food preparation, whereas I, or Jacob became the favorite of his mother, and she also played favorites. And we see this played out over the course of 40-plus years. Perhaps you can play the tape of your own family and see how things have played out and all the emotions of that. And you can feel that in this text. You can feel how the suspense is rising as Jacob has gone and deceived his father and stolen his brother's blessing. It's absolutely unbelievable as you read the text. How is this possible? Even the suspicions as we looked at of Esau last week, or the suspicions rather of Isaac about uh, Jacob pretending to be Esau. And now Esau is seeing how this has all come about. And we see a revelation really of who Esau is. And we juggle that with God's uh, purposes. 
So I want to look at this in four short points. First of all, uh, Jacob's plot is discovered by Esau and by Isaac. And then secondly, uh, the perception of uh, Isaac, that he is corrected uh, by this action. And then thirdly, uh, the pursuit by Esau of a blessing still. And then lastly, the prophetic presentation of the so-called blessing in verse 39 and 40, which actually has curse elements in it. And we'll wrestle with that with a few cross-references. So let's take a look at this text. We, of course, have broken up chapter 27. It can be read and is intended to be read uh, as a whole. And so it's important to understand the context, especially if you weren't here, that it's important to see that uh, Isaac has sought to bless his son Esau and Esau, or um, uh, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, hears of it and tells Jacob and comes up with a glorious plot to fool uh, her husband Isaac into blessing the younger rather than the older. We know this was prophesied from the birth of these children that this would be so, and yet today is game day in this sense that this blessing would ultimately come upon Jacob and not upon Esau. And we see in God's providential working that he used this method even though he was not the author of it. We see that it's come to pass. We see a lack of humility across the whole family. We see deception, lying, intrigue, the battle for control. We see it all here. You a part of a dysfunctional family? That's right here in the text. We've seen it before and we've uh, made the joke that if you don't think you're part of a dysfunctional family, you're even more dysfunctional. So in the context here, we see that Jacob is not the author of this swindling, but he's very good at playing the part. And he has done this. He's deceived his father. And we looked at that last week. And so as we come to this, notice that it becomes known. This plot becomes discovered and notice the suspense that is built in chapter 27. He has just deceived his father, and it's right at this moment that he almost gets caught personally. Can you imagine how this story would have played out if Esau had walked in the room at that moment? Perhaps there would have been bloodshed, Jacob's blood. Perhaps there would have been a huge disaster of multiple effects and notice all parties after this point are going to suffer. The family would never be the same. And while we'll look at this in more detail, the great pain that comes upon Rebecca's heart is her favorite son after this point. She'll never see again, possibly until the end of his life. It's possible that she never saw him again. Jacob, Esau, just completely jumps himself into extreme idolatry and turning away from any resemblance of pursuing God himself and the promise that his father Isaac, Isaac and his wife with Rebecca would have been strained. But perhaps God worked even in that. Isaac realizes his own sin and Rebecca her own. Everyone pays a great penalty in this great dysfunction. But as we see here, it becomes known. Look at verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Isn't that interesting in the, the context of God's uh, word that he authored this through Moses 
And as Moses is writing these things down, such suspense is built in this historical narrative to see that Jacob almost got caught. And yet he didn't. He gets found out, of course, but he had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father. We've talked about the sin of lying and deception. We've, we've discussed that, but for those of you who have been caught in a lie, you know how this feels. You know what it's like and the torment it is to your soul. But how much even more is it to be the one who finds out that someone has deceived you? In fact, the scriptures throughout the New Testament talk and warn us to be not deceived, to have wisdom. Isaac was very wise. In fact, he was quite uh, skeptical of how everything had happened as far as this blessing being stolen by Jacob. From the voice of Jacob to the feel of Jacob to all the different things that would have brought questions to Isaac's mind, he was still fooled. And so notice in this context that the plot is discovered. And then look at verse 31. It says that he, Esau, also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And there's nothing more depressing than to make a great meal and then nobody's there to enjoy it. Or worst case, the bellies of everyone who shows up are already full. I remember many times in um, my life not uh, communicating well with my own bride, and she made a wonderful meal, not knowing that I had had a huge feast um, for some kind of event. And getting home, I'm quite satisfied and full, and she has been working all afternoon, and I knew I was in trouble. I wasn't hungry for what she had prepared. And how often it is in the context of Scripture that we see that we are often getting fat on things that the Lord would not have us to partake of. We're feasting on the things of this world. We're feasting on deceptions, on mere things that are not the authentic to Feast on things that are not what are satisfying. The junk food, if you will, of this world. And Isaac had eaten his full on a deceptive meal. Even its contents were deceptive, if you remember. That it wasn't even from the field, it was from the fold. It was two goats, and it was made to taste like wild game. And this shows that Rebecca was not only deceptive in mind and thought, but indeed, she was such a good cook that she could mask the meat. You might be thinking of a favorite restaurant that you found out served something other than what you thought you were ordering. Well, Rebecca would be one of those ladies. She could serve that up. Notice in verse 32, it's here that Isaac says to Esau, who are you? And it becomes known here now that uh, he has been deceived. Perhaps there's no greater disappointment than to realize that you've been lied to, especially as a father. But in this context, the Lord is not on his side. Notice he answers, Esau says, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Esau is speaking truth. Esau, if you will, is 
doing what he was asked to do by his father. Esau was the one who had gone out and killed and worked hard, perhaps for many, many hours, if not days, to bring back the best of the best for his father. Notice the anticipation of being blessed by your father. And this is the context of this. Your heart really goes out to Esau in a human way that he has worked hard, he has done what his father has asked, and he's really wanting this blessing. And so we see that this plot is discovered. But secondly, notice that Isaac here at this point receives quite a different shock. Look at verse 33. It says, Then Isaac trembled very violently. What a shock when we realize that we've been deceived. This man, over a hundred years old, receiving a lie from his second son about the first, realizing he had been deceived, realizing that he had given a blessing to one that he didn't want to, he trembled violently. In a sense, what has been the habit of this family has come back upon them. What has been the dysfunction of deception has become the commonplace fruit of Isaac's life. Isaac, for instance, should have been very aware from the very birth of his own children that the older would serve the younger, that these two were at war, knowing that uh, Esau had sold his birthright, knowing that God had chosen Jacob, even though he wasn't Isaac's preference. That Isaac should have been looking to the Lord who is worthy to be trusted, and Isaac's faith falters. He looks rather to his own deeds rather than those promises of God. And so it's in this context that he trembles violently. So is the shock when our own fleshly ways are revealed before us. We realize who we really are. And without truly understanding that, and without truly acknowledging our own sin, we really cannot understand the mercy and grace of God. Which is one of our applications last week, that as Christians we ought to be truthful even in sharing the gospel. While we certainly want to invite people and be warm to them as far as the gospel is concerned, in showing them that God does indeed care for those who are caught in sin, we have to tell them the truth. We have to label it as it is. That God is a holy God. That he is just. He must judge sin. And so it's in the context of that that we have to be truthful about the things of God. That he indeed is bringing judgment. Although he brought it, in our case, upon his own son. The context of God's mercy is found right here in this text. That God, while he's dealing with this particular family in this particular time and space, is ultimately building a redemptive line that will bless the nations. That you and I are in this room, washed in the blood of the Lamb, because of God's previous work through this redemptive line. And even through our own dysfunction, and even through our own lives, has God not shown mercy and grace 
grace that is greater than all of our sin. And Isaac trembles. He trembles at the revelation of this. Violently, it says. You can see an old, frail man that is blind, hard of hearing, probably reclined, and he begins to shake violently that his own sin has been brought to his attention, that he indeed has not trusted the Lord, has not yielded to the Lord, and yet he has pressed in to see his own will done and not God's will to be done. And so notice his perception in verse 33. He says, Isaac trembled very violently and he asked this question. He says, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, he shall be blessed. Notice Isaac's confession. He confesses, first of all, that he was deceived. Secondly, that he ate of game that he was, uh, was of a deception. But thirdly, notice also it says here in verse 33 that this blessing will stand. And this should be important for us to understand. The blessing that a father gave was not just uh, something that could be retracted or given to another or undone. It's prophetic in nature. It was pronounced upon. And so Isaac, all at once, he's not, the, the realization that came to him and while, why he is, is violently uh, responding to this is the realization that he is putting his trust in something other than ultimately God's plan and promises. And he is corrected. He's shaken out of his stupor to back to what God's purposes are and that the blessing that just came out of his mouth, that God has used that for his ultimately, his redemptive purposes, not just in Jacob's life, but also his life. He will be blessed in other words, my words stand, they cannot be taken back. Now, what an awesome thing that is, because it's really revealing what God does, that his word is final. His word will come to pass. His word will never pass away. We will pass away, the flowers of the earth will pass away, creation itself will pass away, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It cannot be undone. But notice now the response of Esau. He's still pursuing a blessing, but we also get to see his heart. Lest we are sitting here thinking that we should show compassion to such a one, the unfolding of this is very interesting in the character of Esau. He is not seeking God by faith. He is not seeking the promises of God. His life shows that. But he is seeking a blessing from his father. And that is a good desire in the sense of humanly speaking. But notice how much this meant to him. He's a 40 plus year old man and he's desiring a blessing and he realized that he's been swindled out of it. And he is hot mad. And while we can't look at the full response here, we'll pick that up next week. But in verse 34, it says, As soon as Esau heard these words of his father, notice his response. He cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. There's nothing like a missed opportunity, let alone a missed blessing. Perhaps something's coming to your mind in a time that you did not get something. 
Oftentimes, I've corrected my own children and told them they cannot have something if their conditional, the, the, the conditional terms were not met, if it was eating their food, they didn't get dessert, or whether if they did this, then this. The, the loss of the opportunity becomes a reason for weeping, a, we, a reason for great bitter cries. And this is a grown man weeping at the missed opportunity. It's like spilled water. You can't get it back. A missed opportunity, never to be recovered, and that coming from your own father. And he says these words at the end of verse 34. Bless me, even me also, O my father. His great cry to be connected to a family's blessing, and yet this blessing was inextricably tied to the promise of God given to Isaac's father, Abraham. And yet to find out that he is on the outside of that, and yet really his own desires not wanting to be a part of that, we know that earlier from this text, that Esau himself sold his birthright. It is playing out of that very um, deception or that very uh, lack of desire towards God and his promises that Esau is suffering here. And he's crying a great bitter cry that there would be a blessing reserved for him as well. Then look at his further pursuit here in verse 35. But he said, your brother came deceitfully, Isaac says, and he has taken away your blessing. So Esau's already recognized, hey, I, I, I didn't get that blessing. Father, I want a blessing. But then Isaac announces, no, your brother's taken your blessing. Now, it seems weird to us in Western thought and language to say, this is kind of an interesting story. It, it seems weird to us. How is it that uh, Esau couldn't still have been kind to his son and, and, and blessing him? Well, the, it's the concept of what this blessing is. It's a bestowal, really, in a prophetic way upon the next generation of what God has promised. And so there's this, this blessing that is uh, being given. But in a human sense, there's nothing greater than a father's uh, acknowledgement of his own children. A blessing, if you will, can only come from a parent to a child in this way. A father uh, constantly complimenting his son or his daughter is extremely important. The blessing is a bestowal of not just trust, but acknowledgement. We have a whole generation of not just unparented children, but children who have never understood the love of a father. And that's one of the reasons that they could never understand their heavenly father. It's on a physical, human level, it seems impossible to respond to God. And perhaps some of you relate to that. If you have not um, grown up with a father, I feel spoiled in this way. That God has blessed me with a very godly father from my youth, taught me the ways of God, and loved me enough to correct me, and, and brought me up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But there's, there's that desire in every uh, children's heart to hear from their father that they are good at something, or that they're even watching, or that they even notice. It's amazing how some of these wounds, perhaps even in your own heart, can last decades or a lifetime. 
Perhaps you remember something your own father said. I've often talked to my children about ways that I've hurt them over the years. And it blesses me, even though it's hard to hear, when I have wounded them deeply and sought their forgiveness. But here in this context, Esau is desperately reaching for anything that he can grab. And look at verse 36. It says, Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? So he turns his attention ultimately in anger towards his brother for what he has done. And he says, For he has cheated me these two times. Referring to selling of the birthright and this. And he says, He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isn't it interesting in the context when we have despised something, especially the promises of God, that we recognize the weight of that, and yet our heart's desire is not even for it. And we see this in Esau's life because we know that he despised his birthright from the very beginning. We're going to see this character continue. It's not really his desire at all anyway. And yet, notice he blames everyone except himself. He doesn't blame himself for his own actions. Surely, if there had been a time where he humbled himself and said, you know what, I was a fool. I sold my birthright. And Jacob is certainly one to receive it. I must bear the consequences of this. God knows better than I do. But that's not Esau's heart. He still wants more. He wants his father to give him something that which he cannot give. And isn't it often that in human nature we are seeking from God, let alone anyone else, something that they can't provide? Perhaps we're looking for love in a relationship that really won't come to us apart from God's love and mercy. Perhaps we're looking for a comfort in some other way. Isaac looked for it in the sense of food. Esau in his father's blessing. Jacob, in the approval of his mother. And so here in the context, this pursuit of blessing is really the unfolding of Esau. He's pursuing something that which he cannot have. Now take a look at um, the last bit of this conversation, verse 37. It says, Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, as if things going to get worse. I've made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Can you imagine the weight of those words upon Esau? Not only had he been swindled out of his blessing, and not only has his father said his blessing will stand, but he gives him the hard truth that all these things shall be, and he has nothing left for Esau. Nothing left. And so we see Esau's response in verse 38. Esau says to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? And isn't this the question of even despising that which comes from God? There's only one blessing ultimately. It's ultimately coming from the hand of God. And he's saying, don't you have another? Isn't there another kind? Bless me, even also me, oh my father. And he lifted up his voice and wept. Seeking the approval and the things of this world will always leave us bitter and weeping 
and lonely. It's a sobering passage that even the New Testament quotes, which we'll look at in just a moment. But there's this great weight that comes upon Esau that he realizes he cannot get this blessing. And so lastly, Isaac then brings a prophetic presentation to his oldest son. It says, Then Isaac his father answered him and said, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. So notice the context of this so-called blessing that Esau is seeking is prophetic in nature. It's what's going to come about, but it actually uh, has curse-like uh, implications. Now, if you contrast this, this is on the same page in your Bible, it's interesting to contrast Jacob's blessing and Esau's so-called blessing. Notice that God blesses him. He, he asks that God would bless him with the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. In other words, there's, there's blessing from God and the, the natural blessing of the earth. But he says, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. In other words, you're, you're not going the, to, to have this. And notice he starts with earth and then moves to heaven. In contrast to verse 28 with, with uh, Jacob, he starts with the blessing of heaven and moves to the fatness of the earth. It's very interesting in this context that just as in heaven, so shall it be on earth. That God's ultimate judgment coming upon Esau is that even the common things, the fatness of the earth, is going to flee from him, away from the fatness of the earth, and away from the dew of heaven, from on high. And then you contrast the second part in verse 40, that by your sword you shall live. There will be a sense of violence, a constant conflict that we will see. Now, we don't have time to look at this this morning, but we know that Esau becomes the great nation of Edom. And Edom ultimately is, is constantly in trial with not just surrounding nations, but definitely as Israel grows, which Jacob would ultimately be his name changed to Israel the 12 tribes, as you know, and then the flourishing of uh, the nation of Israel as we know it. And so we see here this challenge between Jacob and Esau growing in this very text, but yet this presentation is that Esau would not have the blessing. He would not be able to taste of the good of all that had come from ultimate promises from God upon Isaac and ultimately to Jacob. Now, this should leave us in great um, terror in, a, in, in several ways. But as we look at this, we contrast this with the book of Hebrews. And we consider how this is used in context, not just in, in uh, Romans 9, but also in Hebrews, that, that, that Esau sought it diligently with tears, and yet he found no place for repentance. Now this is important because when we come to a passage like this, we tend to think, oh, wh wh how, how is this interpreted? What does it mean that he sought it but couldn't have it? It's very interesting language in the context of Hebrews speaking to the persecuted church. 
that the author of Hebrews even writes in chapter 6 and in chapter 10 that there is a sense that, that the uh, blessing that we have in Christ can be denied or can be left. Not lost, but left. This sense of apostasy, the sin of apostasy, that they can taste and see and be so close to receiving that which God has given and yet they fall short of it. They seem to be involved in it and they don't get it. Is it indeed then too late to repent? Well, in the context here of this Hebrews passage that is probably very familiar to you, it's important to notice that in the context here as we pull these, uh, these uh, uh, parts of speech um, together here, that the it is referring to the blessing. He wanted to receive it, and he could not. But we need to be careful not to use this as a text to say that there is a closure, if you will, to the opportunity towards repentance. We can't take this and apply it, in other words, in every circumstance that we find. But we do find the darkness of the human heart in as far as Esau's con concerned, because the warning here of this uh, Hebrews passage is that we would not be one like Esau who is immoral and sold his birthright and then when he sought later to receive it he could not even though he sought it diligently with tears. So why is this here for us? Well for our own instruction and two huge warnings here. The straight application from this is as we look at the character of Esau, there is a sense that a heart can grow so hard that it will not repent. That should be scary. There is no second chance. There is no opportunity to repent. And that seems scary. We, we know that in the context of Scripture that uh, from the very beginning it was told that Esau, I have uh, or Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, that God chose Jacob. We know this. We've talked about the wonder of that, that God would choose Jacob, who is just as evil as his brother, and yet God showed him his grace and mercy, and perhaps this should be flowing over our own souls, that there is nothing that makes us more righteous than anyone else on this planet. We simply are recipients of his grace and mercy, and this is why we are called God's special people, because he has showered his love, mercy, and grace upon us, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his great mercy. He has given us the gift of faith and repentance, and we see that here in the context of Scripture. So on one hand, we have this great weight that Esau cannot and is not repenting. We know that just after this, he is now uh, wanting to set his face towards killing his brother. We see even later on that as this blessing has come out, that the next worry about Jacob is whether he is going to marry uh, Canaanite women. And ultimately Esau um, stuffs it to his family in verse 6 of the next chapter, which we'll look at, that Esau goes and uh, immediately marries a wife from the Ishmaelites, just as a spit in the face to his family. And now taking three Canaanite women. Oh, you thought two were bad mom and dad. Now I'm going to marry another one. And that from Ishmael. So you see his heart. 
There's not a repentance. This isn't a repentance that is godly. This isn't a repentance that's leading towards godly sorrow. It's a sorrow that he's, he's lost out in this life. He's sorrowful that he has missed an opportunity, but it's selfish in its motive, as opposed to godly repentance that the author of Hebrews is trying to bring off the page and use Esau as an example of what not to do, that we're warned to not do this, to sell our birthrights for a pot of stew or a moment of pleasure that this is the warning to the church, that you want to continue in Christ, you want to make it to the end, you're going to persevere to the end, then pay attention, do not be deceived, do not sell your birthright, do not miss the blessing that Christ ultimately is bringing to you, not just once, but continual. Do not miss this great Christ. And isn't this the battle of the Christian life? Every day we're presented with opportunities to walk away, to be frustrated with, with the Christian life, to be uh, constantly looking at our own performance, looking at the world, looking at other Christians. There's a reason that we can get discouraged. And yet the scriptures are full of exhortations to let God use these very issues in our lives to mold and shape us. And we might be bothered by that language of letting God, but rather seeing God or yielding to God. We are called to yield, and we do not see a yielding in the life of Esau. We will see that in Jacob eventually, which is very interesting. Two very sinful men doing very sinful things. One receives the grace and kindness of God. One does not. One rejects it. And we see the fruit of that play out in the rest of the book of Genesis. It comes down to this point. Who are we? Who are we? Throughout the New, Old Testament and New Testament, there's constant exhortations. Choose this day whom you will serve, life or death, blessing or cursing. We see it in the context of the New Testament. Are we choosing Christ? Or are we choosing to go the way of the law? Paul preaches this in the book of Galatians to Christians who are being persuaded to go back towards the law that that was their righteousness. And Paul says, don't do it, God forbid it. What about you? Have you ever been persuaded or tempted to walk away from Christ? I think when we get to the real purpose of that question, that we realize our desperate place and our need for God to finish the work that he started. And remember, that is a promise. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. My job is not just to deliver truth, but to give you hope. I need hope. Oh God, let me not end up like Esau. And if you're not thinking those words, you're not listening to the text. If you immediately just identify with Jacob, I'm bad, but I got Jesus. Think about the warning here. Esau is used as an example by the author of Hebrews that we should not be like him. What does that mean? We can be like Esau. Scares the snot out of me. 
that I could do that. But it throws us upon the mercy and grace of God in Christ Jesus that we should not be like Esau. What does it look like to sell our birthright? What does it look like then to betray the blessing or have it in one way stolen out from under us? Well, realistically, every time we sin or we're tempted to walk away from the blessing of what we know to be true, we're in that place. It's a dangerous place. A lie, a cheat, some sin of covetousness that we desire. We're discontented. We don't like how our life is going. We think somebody else has it better than we do. These are all questions that come into our mind. And so the very clear application here is if you are hearing this and you understand your sin, you have a great, great opportunity before God and before men today to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. What an awesome opportunity. The door is not closed. It is not too late to repent. But is there a time coming that it will be too late? Absolutely. And it could be tomorrow. So the glorious truth for even the worst of us in the room is that we're outside of Christ. The wrath of God lays upon our shoulders and we are not right with him. And if we were to die this moment, we'd go into a Christless eternity and suffering apart from the presence of God. But God has said, not yet. And he's given you that opportunity to repent. But secondly, there's an application to us who are in Christ. And this warning is to us that ultimately that we find ourselves in treasuring Christ or being swayed by this present world. And I'm summing that up because it looks different for all of us. But there are ways that we are seeking the pleasures of this life like Isaac and Esau were in this context. And really we could argue that Rebecca was, let alone Jacob in an earthly sense. He just wants it all good. He wants all the good. He doesn't want to pay for it. And he hopes it comes his way. And it did. But notice how it destroyed him. And so in this context, oh believer, beware. Beware of constantly seeking for earthly good or earthly comforts over the glory and majesty of God. And this is important because when it comes to Christian living, Paul uses a Greek word, agnizomai, this is where we get the word agonizing, to strive after Christ. And you say, well, you know, we apply some good Reformed theology here. We know that Christ is the one doing it, and we just kind of sit back and we're passive. Wrong. This is active tense, Christian, saved, following after Christ, agonizomai, that we are going to agonize towards the goal of following after Christ. That means we got to pick up our swords. We have to fight. We have to put sin to death. We have to look into our hearts and ask God to save us from ourselves. That we are going to make it to the end. How? We're, this is where the hope is. That Christ is involved in this. You see this in Colossians chapter 1. I love it. Look, turn over to Colossians chapter 1 uh, verse 27. And he says this, 
For this I toil, struggling with all whose energy, not his, or not Paul's, but his, speaking of Christ, that he powerfully works in me. Notice this interesting duplicity here, that there is a toil that's going on. Who is toiling? Paul. Whose energy is he burning? Jesus is. And what is Jesus doing? He's powerfully working in Paul. Did you see that full circle there? Did you miss it? Paul is agonizing. That's what that word strive is there, toil or struggling. I'm struggling, but I'm burning his energy. As Christians, this is where we get it wrong. We're often trying to do this in our own strength. We're often trying to do it in our own ability. Have you ever been frustrated in your trials uh, fighting sin? Well, it's because we're doing it in our own energy. And Christ says, I've already been there. I've already been there. I've already taken the cross for you. I've already obeyed in this way for you. Rest upon me and my finished work, not your own agonizing toil. And so Paul makes his point. Is he toiling? Yes. Is he toiling for a purpose, for his own glory? No. He's ultimately uh, working out of the victory that Christ has already made. This is exactly what he meant in the verse previous to this in Colossians 1.28, that it's him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. His goal was that they would be mature. And what is his definition of maturity? It's toiling Christians who understand their position in Christ and that that's where they fight from, not for it. So how is this hopeful to us? Christ is at work in you and me. What does obedience look like? Resting completely in the work that Christ has accomplished. That is our toil. Isn't that interesting? Our fight is a fight to yield. Our fight is a fight to give up to die to self, to let his energy work within us, that we stop struggling for our position, but rather fight from that position. And that position is called to rest in him. It's not our action, it's his action. But it's not inaction. It's complete trust in him and through him. So where does this bring us hope? Well, regardless of where you find yourself and how the Lord is applying this text in your heart and mind, first of all, it should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to see that God is able to free us and know it is not too late to repent. But there is a time that that door is going to close upon all of our lives. And the time is now to rest in him. So, Christian, I don't know where you're at, but you're called, just like an unbeliever, to repent regularly, to come back to him. Allow him to just wash your soul in the truth of the gospel afresh, that you would turn from your sin, turn from your energies, and trust fully in God's accomplished work in Christ for you and in you. Is this your heart? We are called and warned, again from Hebrews, to not be like Esau. That we would not be 
one who is sexually immoral or one who has sold the birthright and has traded the glories of God, the treasures of Christ, for mere earthly things. And even if we've done that, the hope here is the warning remains that we would stop doing such things and God will enable us to obey. That is the hope this morning, that Christ has made us partakers of his great and precious promises, as Peter says, that God has given us all things in Christ. And while we get weary as travelers and we're tempted to pick the berries of this world on our hike on the way to the celestial city, may God remind us of his great truths and satisfy us with his presence, that we would not be tempted by the evil one to look at and adore that which is of this world, but gladly sacrifice it in his place that we might take and see that he is good and that we would partake of Christ in such a way that we would drink in the greatness of his mercy and the gloriousness of our position in him as saved, redeemed, called, and restored. And may that be the case for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. It's easy to read in one direction because it's not involved us. It's something that happened thousands of years ago. And we can pull ourselves out of this text and say that it's just a story. And yet, how is it, Lord, in your great kindness and grace, there's no, no thing like your word that you use to pierce into the human heart that you use a historical narrative like this that you have inspired to bring great conviction. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us. If there's one listening that has never bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be that day, that they would find mercy, that it's not too late to repent. And for believers that are tempted in multiple ways, that, God, you would call them to yourself, that you would aid them, that you would draw near to them, that you would comfort them, that you would lead them in the path of repentance, that you would give them hope that when they often feel the way that Esau felt and feels like the door has closed, that, Lord, you would show them truth, that you would not allow the enemy to distort this passage of Scripture in our own hearts to see that we are beyond hope, that we're beyond loving, that we have done things that have put our relationship with you in jeopardy. Apart from blaspheming you and walking the other way, Lord, there is hope for everyone in this room. And so we know for Esau that that was the case. He had closed the door of ever wanting the hope that you would offer, and therefore he found to be hopeless. Let that not be our inheritance but rather let us embrace the cross of Christ with all of its blessings, but also that we would take it up and be your disciples, which means we are going to suffer. But our suffering is temporary as we await Christ to return, who we will see face to face. Lord, for those who have been wounded, those who are wrestling with sin, oh God, would you break the chains? Would you free them, we pray? 
that you might show your grace and your mercy and give them hope in their souls. And we look forward to what you will do. Prepare us now as we reflect on these things, um, as we come to your table. In Jesus' name.